What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Sapira. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different, complete guy, which is the guy who walked the walkways of San Quentin death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... No, no, that's actually funny. And it's funny, I'll tell you why. That's a good one, man. I'll tell you why. Look, when I was on death row, I was in Hello everyone, this is Matt Ralston, and you're listening to Death Row Diaries. You may notice that Bill is not here right now, and that's because there was a stabbing on Death Row in San Quentin, another stabbing. I think there have been three in the last three weeks, and he's fine. He wasn't involved, but when there's a stabbing, they lock down the entire wings so that they can investigate and get to the bottom of what happened. I guess search various cells, but they don't let anyone out or to have privileges until they've resolved their investigation is my understanding. So normally the way the show works is that I talk to Bill every Monday. We record. If we can't do it for some reason, we do it Wednesday or Friday. And all last week we were trying to coordinate and I was communicating through his people, but we just uh, couldn't do it because he's still locked down without any phone access at all for the foreseeable future, I guess. I think it'll be resolved soon, but we weren't able to record an episode this week. Now, some of you are aware and we get a lot of questions about Bill's status in the prison. He is being, um, well, they're closing death row. So he'll be moving to another prison at some point soon. But very soon, he's also going to be resentenced. And I think the, the expected sentence is life without parole. And that does provide a certain path out of prison under the right circumstances. And that's all I'm going to say about it. I'm going to let him tell the audience whatever he wants to tell you guys about it anyway he's been in his cell since at least Monday unable to use the phone and so we don't have an episode for you today and the only thing I could think of to do because we want to give you something to listen to is I'm going to provide you guys the first episode of Murder on Ice. That's a podcast that I did by myself. I did all of it by myself, actually. And if you're a fan of true crime, you might like it. If you don't, I understand. It's fine. We will be back next week with another episode. And of course, going forward, we'll get the whole story as much as we can get about what happened next week to explain why we don't have an episode. 
until then, please enjoy, and please come back next week, where we'll resume our regularly scheduled program. In October of 1997, a 15-year-old boy named John Hartman was beaten to death on the streets of Fairbanks, Alaska. Four young men, three of them Athabascan Indians, were convicted of his murder. Yet years later, the case remains open and unsolved. Who's responsible? How many killers were out on the streets that night? Was racism to blame for these convictions? I'm your host, Matt Ralston, and this is the story of John Hartman and the Fairbanks Four. Case of murder on ice. Our story. Our story of carnage and conspiracy begins on Friday, October 10th. 1997. Remember that time? Princess Diana, Tiger Woods is all over the TV. Puff Daddy is popular. Michael Jordan's Chicago Bulls are en route to another championship. In Fairbanks, Alaska, where our story begins, it's eight degrees Fahrenheit. This is a bit of a cold night. The norm for this day is 16 degrees. But a few months from now, it will be 50 below zero. So this isn't so bad. Downtown is jumping, swarming with people. By Fairbanks standards, that is. Meaning, you can see a few other people out and about. People walking the streets and hitting the six or seven bars in the vicinity. The Mecca Bar. The Midnight Mine. The Big Eye. Where a rush of freezing air fills the room each time the heavy door swings open. And people look at you like, you better be worth me turning around to see who you are. There's a big wedding downtown. And it's drawn people from all over the interior of Alaska. The McCotter Jones Wedding. A beautiful couple whose reception will become infamous. Audrey McCotter and Vernon Jones had village ties. The village, singular. This is how Alaskans refer to the hundreds of rural communities which dot the vast expanse of interior Alaska. It's called Synecdoche. I knew that English degree would pay off at some point. The bride had ties to the Eskimo village of Unicleet, and the groom was from Koyukuk 
in Athabascan village many miles west of Fairbanks. Athabascans are an ethnic group of people native to interior Alaska Indians. This wedding will draw many from these rural enclaves to the big city of Fairbanks. Friends, family, and some who are definitely neither and just looking for a place to get fucked up. See, it's permanent fun dividend time. For those who don't know, the permanent fund is an allotment of funds issued to every man, woman, and child in the state of Alaska every year. It's a dividend of the state's yearly oil revenue, and it comes in the mail in early to mid-October. A nice check. Many residents had received these checks only days prior to this night. And that means that a lot of people are walking around with, this year, $1,296 in their pockets. Nobody had debit cards. So most people just cash their checks and stuff that money into their pockets. And they were living it up tonight, emboldened by this huge surge of cash. Now this money can come in handy if you need to pay for a few cords of firewood or some studded tires. But it can also lead to drunkenness and shakedowns. People getting rolled on the street. The perps realizing that people, especially those treating themselves to a night out downtown, might have a pocket full of bills. By the end of the night, there will have been much debauchery. A happily married couple. And at 2.45 a.m., John Hartman, a 15-year-old boy, will be found laying on the sidewalk beaten so badly that he'll die from his injuries in the hospital the following day. Stomped to death, and his lifeless body reportedly sexually assaulted. A horrific crime which shook the small community of Fairbanks. Four men, three of them native Alaskans, Indians, would be charged with his murder. Two of them confessed to punching kicking, stomping the victim. Yet as the case developed, many in the native community saw signs that these guys had been railroaded. See, also out and about that night were two other crews of guys with eight murder convictions among them, kicking a cab driver nearly to death in the woods, slitting his throat, hacking a woman to death with a hammer, that kind of thing. And there was also the victim, John Hartman's buddy, named Chris Stone, who says he didn't see anything. A drug addict who would go on to be convicted of sex crimes. A guy whose story never made sense. The last person on record to have ever seen his friend, John Hartman. His friend who was found nearly dead, wearing Chris Stone's pants. For some reason. A guy who is, to put it bluntly, not trustworthy. (laughs) 
Fairbanks, Alaska, the Golden Heart City, home to the northernmost Denny's in the world, the northernmost Pizza Hut, pretty much anything you can name, it will be the northernmost thing. I'll always wonder how people perceive my hometown of Fairbanks. I was born and raised there. I was the same age as John Hartman. More than likely, you've never heard of the place. If you have, yes, it gets light all night in the summer. Conversely, it's dark all night in the winter. You should really look into taking an astronomy class. It's fascinating. Yes, it is cold there. Are you from Florida? Is it hot there? Cool. Why don't you get the hell out of my face? Thanks. This night in October, it was dark outside. The sun had risen at 8.33 a.m. and set at 6.40 p.m. Relatively normal. But it was getting darker and darker by the day. In two months, the sun will rise at 10.50 a.m. and poke its head just barely above the horizon setting at 2.41 p.m. This time of year, in October, people don't like to think about the coming winter when downtown will be enveloped in a thick ice fog. It's 8 degrees tonight. That's not that bad. And people are taking advantage of the hospitable weather. Plus, they have all that money from their permanent fund dividend checks. It's Friday night. May as well party, get real incoherently drunk, maybe black out, get in a fight. Yeah, bro, fucking A, right? See, that's kind of what people do here. The pristine, snowy landscapes are serene, yes. And the view of Denali, the tallest peak in North America, never gets old when you can see it. But Fairbanks is a grimy industrial town lined with chain link, a railroad running through it. The crime rate has historically been around that of Detroit. It's no Smallville, no winter wonderland. At 1.30 a.m., Melanie Durham, who was staying in a battered women's shelter downtown, heard an attack, angry, muffled voices, and sounds of flesh, smashing flesh, as she'd later put it. Then a faint cry for help as a car sped away into the darkness. She considered phoning police, but decided against it. She had been in an abusive relationship. It was all too familiar with the law. She was wary of police. She knew this attack happened at exactly 1.30 a.m. because she had been watching Late Night with Conan O'Brien. The musical guest that night, was David Bowie, and he was performing something from the Earthling album. Melanie wasn't a big Bowie fan, leaning more toward butt rock, so when he took the stage on the broadcast at exactly 1.30 a.m., she walked out onto the balcony to have a cigarette, and that's when she heard that series of hard blows, the sounds of flesh, smashing flesh, This is Sean Kelly. He's John Hartman's older brother, describing the last time he saw his brother alive. I heard my mom, like, cry, you know what I mean? And it was a particular sound to it that just 
broke my heart. See, like, the footprints. He had a big old footprint on the side of his head, and he was all busted up and able to hold his hand and uh, pray with him and stuff like that. And I knew he wasn't going to make it. Four young men, well, technically three men and a 17-year-old, will eventually be charged with his murder, robbery, and sexual assault. Their names are George Fries, Eugene Vent, Kevin Pease, and Marvin Roberts. Collectively, they'll come to be known as the Fairbanks Four. This is Father Scott Fisher. He's the reverend at St. Matthew's Episcopal Church. He officiated the wedding that night. He did not, however, attend the reception, which is where the Fairbanks Four were identified by an eyewitness as beating a guy up and speeding away. Hey, I was looking for Father Scott. Yeah. Is this he? Yes, it is there. You're from Fairbanks? Yeah. Do you know where St. Matthew's Church is on First Avenue? I do. Okay, I was the priest there, the rector. I did a wedding there the night Hartman got killed. Um, but in a sense, the whole story began at that church. There was a wedding. Everybody was there at the wedding. Everybody was in town. Um, and I remember wandering through the church after everybody left. And I remember standing outside the church. And there was just, this will sound funny, there was just a vibration. It felt like something was going to happen in town that night. Uh, and it did. Uh, I mean, the, the church was filled. The whole town was throbbing. Everybody, everybody was excited. Everybody was in town, the wedding, etc. And I remember, you know, as I caught my breath after the service before I went back in to pick stuff up, I remember standing there going, because you could feel the vibration. I mean, just everybody was in town because it was PFD time. And there was just so much excitement. And, and there are other moments like that. But I remember thinking, boy, <laughs> there's just a sense here. Something's going to happen tonight. I remember that sense. Um, you know, it's not Disneyland. It's real life out there. You know, but you can't hide. So often when discussing these unthinkable instances of brutal, pointless murder, the killer gets all the attention. Everybody knows Ted Bundy. Not that many people know the names of his victims. And John Hartman should not be lost in this crazy case. The case of his murder. And he hasn't been. As the saga of the Fairbanks Four created divides in the community of Fairbanks, respect was always paid to this victim. Those who thought the Fairbanks Four were innocent or thought they were guilty just wanted justice for him. And Native activists made it a point to honor him, even when fighting to free the four men convicted of his murder. John Hartman was, by all accounts, a good kid 
who made friends easily and loved animals. He was from a broken home, often left to survive on his own, roaming around town, crashing with friends when he didn't feel like he could go back. He was on the skinny side, white, pale, handsome with straight brown hair. He had girlfriends. He played three years of junior football. His dream was to get a football scholarship to attend Michigan State University and study to become a veterinarian. He was in the process of forming a band with some friends to be called the Sentinels. And that is a great band name. So he was saving up money to buy a bass guitar. He volunteered his time to run errands and do grunt work to set up the starting line for the Yukon Quest, an 1,100-mile sled dog race that begins in Fairbanks and ends in Whitehorse, Canada. A memorial was held for him at Cheap Charlie's, a local bar following his death to help his family pay for funeral and hospitalization costs. John died on October 12, 1997, age 15, in the intensive care unit of the Fairbanks Memorial Hospital. Now, John had been kind of spinning his wheels at this point in his life. He had stopped short of graduating from junior high, missing one credit. He was currently out of school for his freshman year and enrolled in a correspondence class to make up the credit with the aim of attending West Valley High School after the winter break. Also, as is common in Fairbanks, a place without a lot of opportunity or any community centers to speak of, John appeared to be falling in with the wrong crowd. On Friday, October 10th, 1997, John went to the McDonald's across the street from West Valley High School to meet his girlfriend, who was attending the school and was on her lunch break. The couple were joined by John's friend, Chris Stone. Chris Stone is a douchebag. He's that kid you don't want your kid to become friends with. Chris was big for his age, maybe six foot, 200 pounds. He was white. He lived in a trailer park. He was in tune with the counterculture, maybe sporting some oversized jinkos, a sideways cap, a type of look that says, yeah, I might steal your copier toner. He was for the time being, along with John Hartman's girlfriend, a student at West Valley High School, as was I. Chris Stone later said in court that he had smoked some meth prior to going to McDonald's to meet John Hartman and his girlfriend, who I'm sure was just thrilled with his presence. I didn't even know meth was a thing in Fairbanks back then, but Chris Stone had a lot of connections, good and bad, one of which had led him to recently be jumped, badly beaten, and hospitalized much like his friend would be later this evening. John Hartman and Chris Stone, who, like usual, was skipping school, went to the public library across town and then to a pull tab parlor called Lucky Aces, where John Hartman's mom worked. Pull tabs, for those who don't know, are a major fixture in Fairbanks. They're like scratch tickets, but you don't scratch them. You pop a paper tab off of a little card to see if you've won something. They offer relatively small jackpots, but you tend to win menial sums quite often. So this keeps people sitting there, pulling on them, one after another, after another, after another, after another. She gave her son $10 for food, a crisp $10 bill. The pair then went to the Bentley Mall, 
Now, this is cheekily referred to as the Bentley Hall due to its floor design, which is out of a short, wide-open pathway, and also due to the sparsity of stores. Then they went to a different McDonald's, which was near the mall, and back across town to meet a friend at Noah's Rainbow Inn. Noah's Rainbow Inn is a disgusting, seedy motel full of syringes, convicts, and hookers. It's no place for a 15-year-old. It has one review on Yelp. I spent a summer living in what is now the College Inn, except it was called Noah's Rainbow Inn back then. The day I moved out, my next-door neighbor was shot by his upstairs neighbor who was cleaning a loaded pistol. Big one, too, like a forty-five. I'm sure it's better now. Three stars. Noah's Rainbow Inn is about four miles from where John Hartman was found lying unconscious with his head stomped in, clear on the other side of town. John Hartman and Chris Stone arrived there at about 5 p.m., where their 17-year-old friend named E.J. Stevens was babysitting a toddler and a five-year-old. Interesting choice for a babysitter. A 17-year-old kid with meth-smoking cohorts, but then again, the father of these children didn't always make great decisions. He'd later be locked up in jail, along with the Fairbanks Four. Totally unrelated case. Chris Stone, being a shady prick and all, promptly stole a bottle of Wellbutrin from the father. This is an antidepressant. He got it out of the bathroom and testified that he took between eight and ten of these pills, and that John Hartman took several, but not as many. Nothing was more important than treating my depression. And with once daily Wellbutrin XO, I feel like me again. And I have to say it's nice that there's a low risk of sexual side effects. Wellbutrin XL effectively treats depression with a low risk of sexual side effects. It feels great to enjoy being around people again. Wellbutrin XL is not for everyone. There is a risk of seizure when taking Wellbutrin XL. This risk can increase, so don't use if you've had a seizure or eating disorder, or if you abruptly stop using it. It doesn't say if it mixes well with meth. Another friend named Trent Muller, John Hartman's best friend and expectant future bandmate in the Sentinels, arrived with a box of wine. Not long after, he witnessed John Hartman having a seizure. This friend, Trent Muller, gave the following account in an interview many years later. As soon as we got in there and we saw John, and he was sitting in a chair, no more than 15 to 20 seconds after we got in there, he hit the ground and started going into convulsions. He was banging his head on the door, and John was just sitting there with Chris and EJ, just dazed, just like he was a robot, and they were controlling his body. Every time I'd ask him, hey man, you want to come with us? He'd like look up pale-faced and just like, no, I don't want to go. I just want to sit here. And I was like, okay, well, I can't force him. So me and EJ took off about 10, and that was the last time we ever saw him. And much later, he added this, that Chris Stone had his friend John Hartman on, quote, a drug cocktail, some kind of mind control drug. A mind control drug? Robots controlling his body? What does this mean exactly? It's a really bizarre statement. I've been told that this crew liked to manufacture drugs in their trailers. So maybe it factors in the way he's phrasing it. But still, mind control. This is something that needs to be noted and explored. See, this issue of control would come up over and over again, relating to Chris Stone. It turns out there was this incident after the John Hartman murder but before the trials of the Fairbanks Four. Chris Stone was in a trailer. 
and he taped a girl's arms together while she was raped by his friend. When authorities questioned him, he told them he was obeying his friend's every command, like as if he was in a trance. Now, this is an actual transcript of his police interview being read by actors, actors who I need to Venmo, but haven't yet. They were just playing computer, talking. Ira was, um, we were like trying to watch a movie, but we couldn't find it. Okay, so you were just goofing off? Yeah. Okay, and after Mike got there, then what happened? Uh, and Mike fooled around. I ended up taping her arms, which is like foolish, and they went in the room. They did whatever they did. Uh, I've not really the knowledge of what they did. And I went in there after Mike left the room. I cut the tape. Mike came in there and said, oh, by the way, if you find out you have AIDS, don't go telling everyone. It can ruin my reputation. And she started crying and ran out of the house. Okay. What about, um, let's back up a little bit. You said that um, you were there and, and her and Mike were goofing around. You taped her arms. How'd that come about? I don't really remember the whole conversation and stuff, but they were talking like kinky stuff and Mike said, go find some handcuffs. And I looked for handcuffs and found tape. Mike's like, well, here, taper. Mike was basically treating me like a puppy dog and. He was treating you like a puppy dog. I obeyed his every command for some dumb reason. Obeyed his every command. Hmm. I don't know the significance of this, if any, to Chris's relationship with John Hartman, but I think it's more than a coincidence. This whole concept. Was Chris Stone manipulating John Hartman? After all, he stole the bottle of Wellbutrin. Did he pressure John to take several of these pills? Or was this whole crew just into some weird shit? I don't know. I do think, and I've not heard it noted that having a seizure hours before you're physically attacked could lead to some serious medical complications, though. How big a house is this? It's uh, a pretty large trailer. But it's a trailer house, right? Yeah. Trailers can be big, you know? Yeah, but they can only be so wide, right? Right. I mean, no matter what they can only be, you know, 14 feet is usually probably the widest. 16 feet with a tip out. Anyway, up to maybe 20, 22, you know, so we're talking about an area probably a little bigger than this room. No, my, my trailer is, my, my wideness in my living room is twice this. Twice as wide, huh? Twice as wide. So your trailer is 24 feet wide? I guess. I, I never really went and measured it. Okay. And yeah, in that area, there's five people there and you were so engrossed with the computer you didn't notice that any of these other things were going on yes so that's what you're saying i love computers <laughs> okay what about you felt threatened during that time when you were with her i didn't know about it you didn't know about it huh no i i didn't seem like she was threatened but i i didn't know what was going on in her mind at the time too but you know it yeah but there was just she wasn't all like, ah, ah. Okay. Well, you ever, well, you ever been scared, Chris? Yes, I have. I've been scared to death. 
I was scared when I was in jail. I was scared when I got the hell beat out of me. I was scared when my best friend died. Do you whimper or whine? Yes, I do. Every time? When I'm scared to death, as she puts it, I do. I'm not calm. I'm not just sitting there. I'm looking around my shoulder. Like I am freaking out. Now, from this portion of the interview, we can tell that Chris Stone is an incorrigible little twat and definitely a liar, dubiously claiming to have the world's biggest double wide. But there's something else here that will be very important later. Chris, who denied under oath knowing what happened to John Hartman, says he was scared when my friend died. A very reasonable interpretation would be that he saw what happened. Chris wasn't in the hospital when John Hartman died. So why was he scared? I understand being sad, not scared. Yet, this interview was withheld from the defense teams of the Fairbanks Four by the Fairbanks Police Department. As far as their trials were concerned, he never said this. Further, Chris says that when he is scared to death, he is not calm. He is, in his words, freaking out. Now, minutes after John Hartman was attacked, Chris would make a scene, rushing into a local grocery store, nervous and definitely freaking out. The way he describes himself as acting when he's scared. A cab driver remembered picking up Chris Stone, John Hartman, and their friend E.J. Stevens at their babysitting rave at Noah's Rainbow Inn. He recorded his arrival at 1.12 a.m. and dropped the boys off at E.J.'s house downtown near the area of the attack, about a 10-minute drive shortly thereafter, about 8 to 10 minutes before John Hartman would be fatally assaulted. EJ says he offered John Hartman and Chris Stone his house to stay the night, but Chris said he had a place to stay, so the two declined the offer and walked down the street. Chris Stone says that him and John Hartman parted ways, but EJ Stevens' mother remembers this very differently stating that the two walked together toward the site of the murder. Something happened with Chris. Chris knows. I know he knows more, she would later say. So a witness says they were together, and according to the cab driver, he dropped them off together right before the beating. Granted the thin time frame, it would seem highly unlikely that Chris Stone knows nothing about what happened. But he's never said a word through his pierced lip. But nobody officially claimed to see John Hartman for the next hour and a half. He was discovered by a passing motorist on the ground, barely alive, at 2.50 a.m. He was lying there for one hour and 20 minutes, faintly crying for help. Despite this, the woman who heard his attack at the women's shelter never called the police, never checked it out. She did tell her supervisor about it. A call was never made. Nothing happened. Why? What is wrong with this woman, you might ask? I don't know. A passing car saw John Hartman on the sidewalk, next to a sizable amount of blood. They thought about stopping, but figured whoever did this could still be out there. They rushed home and called the police. Man down! That was the language an operator used to note this call at 2.50 in the morning. An ambulance was sent immediately. A local firefighter had been in training to be a paramedic. Given his experience with Fairbanks, he assumed the man-down description 
as vague as it was, likely was some drunk who'd just passed out on the street. He arrived in an ambulance within three minutes of the call. It was kind of hard to find because the lighting was low and it was dark out, he testified. Once him and his three-person crew found John Hartman, his body bridging the street and the curb, they tried to get his attention, but he didn't react to their questions and shouts. He was out cold, barely breathing. Now, I remember it was eight degrees outside, so hypothermia was a possibility, but on closer inspection, bruising and bloody indentations were noticed on the kid's head, which rested next to a pool of blood. There was some kind of trauma involved. We didn't know whether the person got hit by a car, whether he was beat up, but it was obvious some kind of trauma took place, the paramedic said. Next, John Hartman suddenly lurched. He straightened his arms suddenly and curled forward, a behavior known as decerebrate posturing. These movements are symptoms of head trauma, and they were noted in the report, along with his pupils' lack of response to a flashlight. They put him in a neck restraint and took him to the hospital. There's a lot of moving parts here. We know that John Hartman was heard being attacked at 1.30 a.m. And this appears to be undisputed. But why? Couldn't it have been a different beating? A fight where a guy got beat up and walked away on the exact same street? It's unlikely, but it's definitely possible. If you know Fairbanks, there are fights constantly. So could this incident have happened after 1.30 a.m.? If so, it would affect the alibis of everyone implicated. Just something to consider. The four guys convicted of John Hartman's murder were all out and about downtown that night. Their names again are George Fries, Eugene Vent, Kevin Peace, and Marvin Roberts. It can be difficult to keep track of the four of them if you're not familiar with the case. There are all those one-syllable names. For a long time, it confused me too. So, for the purposes of this story, I'm going to pretend they're in a band and assign them some crude archetypes. There's George Fries, the bad boy, age 20. Eugene Vent, the baby-faced youngster, age 17. Kevin Peace, the white boy, 19. And Marvin Roberts, the frontman, the rock star, also 19. Now, this story is indeed complicated, so much so that I resorted to the rather corny literary device of pretending these guys are in a band. But despite this chaotic chain of events, even the most punishing, dangerous, far-reaching storm has an epicenter, a spark of pressure that kicks things into motion. And this could be George the Bad Boy's foot. As John Hartman lay in intensive care at the Fairbanks Memorial Hospital, his face swollen and scuffed with boot marks, George Fries would arrive at the same hospital the next morning, thinking he had a broken foot. Hmm. George is a pretty little guy, wiry, about 150 pounds. He's with those in Fairbanks, whether they're white or an Indian like George simply call a native. He has tanned skin, long, straight black hair. There's a glint in his eye and like most people born in Fairbanks, he speaks with a little bit of a Texas twang. 
The nurse on duty took it upon herself to call the police. I mean, you have a kid that's been badly beaten and stomped. Boot marks on his face, and now George shows up limping badly, wearing a pair of Kmart's Northwest Territory brand boots. Foot pain. Got in a fight last night. Doesn't know how it happened. He was drunk. Has a bruise, stated the triage assessment. This was a bit of a rough patch in George's life. To use his words, he was feeling alienated. He had a baby daughter, lived with his girlfriend. He wasn't going out much. A few weeks prior, in a totally unrelated matter, several tourists said George had pulled a gun on them during a confrontation on the edge of downtown at another crappy lodging establishment. His friend Kevin, the white boy, had provoked it, it was alleged, by yelling a bunch of pervy stuff to some of the women in their group. This pissed these tourists off, and one of them chased George, who then allegedly, on a bicycle, pointed a gun at the guy's head. He did escape, however, and weeks later, as George, Kevin, and the other two guys were being charged with the murder of John Hartman, one of these tourists came forward and notified police. He said he recognized George on the news, and that was the guy who had pointed the gun at him. This is one of the many drawbacks of being charged with a high-profile murder, I suppose. In the summer of 1998, after George had been charged with the John Hartman attack, but prior to his trial, a pair of juries deliberated his gun-brandishing case. The first trial ended when a native Alaskan juror locked himself in a courthouse bathroom rather than continue deliberating. The juror told the local newspaper, the Fairbanks Daily News Miner, that he thought the tourists had conspired against George, set him up. This wouldn't be the first time, if you believe him. Tried a second time, George was found guilty and received two years. I look into your eyes and see a truly troubled young man, Judge Ralph Beislein observed during sentencing. The same judge had once presided over one of my criminal cases as well. I'd been busted. It didn't look good. The crime? Minor consuming alcohol. Yeah. I was drinking a Milwaukee's Best, ice, obviously, with some friends in a muddy housing lot on the outskirts of town. Some cops showed up. Beisline spoke to me in that same admonishing tone. He went on to become the senior district judge of Alaska, the biggest judge in the land. George didn't flinch. Just because I was convicted of this doesn't mean I did it, he said, staring daggers into Beisline's eyes. Kicked someone last night, but doesn't remember anything else. States awoke this morning at home, foot hurting, a doctor noted back at the hospital. A Fairbanks police sergeant and John Hartman's primary nurse would compare George's boot tread to John Hartman's facial bruises. They matched up perfectly, she'd later testify. didn't have any details about any kind of motive or whatever. Because you didn't know what your motive was that night, did you? Uh, because there isn't any. I didn't do it.
You know that feeling when you suddenly wake up after a long night of pounding beer and Bacardi in a parking lot in 8 degree weather? I hope not. For what seems like a few seconds, you don't know where you are, which direction the door is. Your head is spinning. Did you hit on your friend's mom? Oh my god. What happened to that hundred bucks I had? A few crumpled ones here. God, that feeling sucks. Then you feel your foot throbbing. That sucks even more. You're having a really bad morning already. Your foot really, really hurts. Damn it. I think it's broken. You have to go to the hospital. George says he doesn't remember that entire night that he was blacked out. It went as follows, as it's been pieced together by himself and corroborated by those who were in his company or just saw him around that night. George and his friends had all planned on attending the reception of the jones McCotter wedding, the place to be that night, the only place to be, at the Eagles Hall, a banquet club downtown. Before setting out for the reception, he and several friends had played up and down the river in his apartment. This is a card game where you take a card and you guess if the next card is higher or lower in number than that card. And If you're wrong, you take a drink. Then you guess the suit. And if you're wrong, you take a drink. And then it keeps going. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. You're just going to be taking an awful lot of drinks. A friend in the group later told police that the five involved drank two full cases of beer in about two hours before continuing on to the wedding reception. That's nine and a half beers per person if you're doing the math. The 150-pound George then drinks two or three shots of Bacardi. Between 1.20 and 1.30 a.m., the time when John Hartman was attacked, George and his friends began the 20 or so minute walk to the reception hall. They stopped at a friend's house to warm up from the 8-degree weather. The reception hall is a few blocks from where John Hartman was found, lying on the icy pavement. George says he blacked out immediately after leaving his house. Remembering next to nothing the entire night. A zombie, present in body, not in spirit. At 2 a.m., the group arrive at the reception, and George drinks some more Bacardi with a group of people in the parking lot. George's friend goes into the Eagles Hall and comes out an hour later and finds George still boozing it up in the parking lot. George and his three friends then walk to the elbow room bar, where George is kicked out for being too drunk. A difficult accomplishment in this particular establishment, but keep in mind that George is underage. At 3 a.m., George is seen roughhousing with some people on the sidewalk outside of that bar, about six blocks from the scene of the murder. Note, it's quite difficult to be roughhousing with an injured foot. He bums a ride home from the bar and, for no apparent reason, gets out of the car midway and walks home. Now, this is an hour and a half after John Hartman was beaten. Assuming George hurt his foot in a fight, we've really been able to walk? To roughhouse out on the sidewalk? Would this injury, so bad it required a visit to the hospital, have set in yet? Or could George have been so drunk he felt nothing? Yet another possibility was his foot not yet injured, that he didn't hurt it until he got home and was wrestling with a friend in the bathroom after continuing drinking. Hmm. At 4 a.m. he gets home, where his original group as well as his girlfriend are already there drinking. He drinks several more shots of liquor. He wakes up with severe foot pain. 
probably a hangover and general hostility toward life in general, crawls downstairs and gets a ride to the emergency room. Now, George says he doesn't remember hardly anything that happened that night. So do people in alcohol-induced blackouts typically do things completely out of their character? Do you become violent if you aren't already inclined to be? Do you suddenly become a racist or kind of into dudes? Do you stomp on people if that's not your thing? I don't know. George, though, admitted that he'd been in fights. So was this out of character? Maybe. There's definitely a big difference between some fisticuffs and stomping a guy's head in as he's limp. That is highly frowned upon. While waiting for an x-ray, George would be interviewed at the hospital by Detective Aaron Ring of the Fairbanks Police Department, who drove right over after being tipped off by the nurse about George's foot injury. Detective Ring had already arrested Eugene Vent, the youngster of the Fairbanks Four, because he had allegedly pulled a gun on a motel night clerk. Detective Ring was starting to piece a few things together. George didn't know, but Detective Ring had already interviewed Eugene, and Eugene had said George had helped him kill John Hartman. Detective Aaron Ring was a white guy in his 30s, originally from Michigan, a graying crew cut. He looked just like a cop. His methods throughout this case would later come into serious question and be widely criticized. The following are interview transcripts being reenacted by actors, actors who I paid in IPA. A few things to note. At first, George is being interviewed by Detective Ring, and then later in a separate interview, he's interviewed by Deputy Kendrick, an associate of Ring. Also note, George's girlfriend is by his side. What I'll need is probably that left boot there, if I can swing by and pick that up from you guys. Yeah, I won't be using it for a while. Okay. And I can compare that to the impression we got upstairs and see if that's... uh, If he gets charged, what will that be? Who? Well, that... uh, That depends. I mean, if we've got a story of a... So, it'd be manslaughter, or... Would it be manslaughter? Isn't that a weird question to ask about something you don't think you did? I don't know. I'm not sure how I'd react if I didn't remember doing something. But keep in mind, George admittedly got into a lot of fights. This wasn't out of the question. But this is the first he's heard of it, and there's no denial. I think that's weird. I don't remember anything downtown. At the Eagles. Okay. I need your help with what you do remember, okay? And how involved you were over there. Where this happened with this guy, okay? The extent of your involvement. And then we'll talk about what you remember the other people being involved in, okay? Here's what I'd like to do, and is ask you a series of questions. If anything, you know, helps you remember, or if you, if you just plain know the answer, I'd like to know. Did you have any sort of weapon at all? Were you carrying any weapon at all last night? No. Okay. Have you used a weapon on anybody? No. Okay. Are you sure of that? No. Now, this doesn't instill much confidence in his innocence either. 
But is he just being totally honest in that he doesn't know what happened? It's tough to read the vibe. Did you have a weapon last night? No. Did you take a shot of apricot brandy? No. Did you don a feather boa and dance atop the bar like a rockette? No. Are you sure? No. Okay. So let's... When did you first go downtown and who was that with last night? I fucking... That's why I, uh, I asked where... Uh, probably around 1.30, 2 o'clock, around... In the afternoon? No, at night. At night. Where'd you go? Just went downtown and then fucking... I blacked out all the way down there and then, then I fucking uh, came to and I was hobbling around there at, at Midtown. The validity of George's statements has come into serious question with good reason. At the beginning of the interview, he states that he was still buzzed. His blood alcohol content was high. Both of the confessions from the Fairbanks Four, especially Eugene, the youngster's confession, would be decried as coerced. So I'm not saying what George is saying is gospel, but he did just say that when he got to be near his apartment, he was hobbling around. And this would directly contradict his claim that he injured his foot after he got home. Is this something you've done before when you've been drinking? Well, I've been in fights before when I was drinking. Not a smart thing to say. Later, after several rounds of back and forth, with George continuously saying that he doesn't know what happened, that he doesn't remember, as Detective Ring pushes him and tensions rise, George says he wants to go home. Now, this is a sign that the interview needs to stop, but it doesn't. Okay. I will be fair with you, but to tell me that you don't remember anything is unfair. I don't remember. This is not fair. But I, I don't remember seeing it. And it's, it's, uh... Get in your fucking head. I don't remember. And don't treat me with disrespect, okay? Fucking... Please don't. Fucking, why can't you fucking... Because it's not true. Yes, it is. Okay, it's just not. And, and you, you... You need to get past that. Well, you, you need to get past Because you, you can remember things. I want to see a fucking hypnotist or something because <laughs> I don't fucking remember. Well, we don't have Kreskin in here, and we, and, and, and we don't really need it, okay? You can do this on your own. You just need to be a little stronger, okay? That's all. That's all. You need to, be a, you need to stand up and be a man, basically, okay? Oh, yeah? Are you going to bring me home now? Oh, well. <laughs> I'm taking this picture back. I'm not leaving. I'm just taking this picture back. But when you want to go, then we, then we will. We will. I want to go home. George says he just lost it. And he told the cops what they wanted to hear because he wanted this process to be over. Now, this is common among confessions which are later deemed to be false. But it's still damning. Detective Ring would now stop the cassette it would be alleged later that this was a tactic of Ring, that he would stop his tape, intimidate the subject verbally or physically, and then start the tape again. He does seem to run out of tape at a rate that would exceed the length of the interviews on the tape. Hmm. This portion of the interrogation takes place later, 
with the deputy Kendrick. And so what, at what point did you hurt your foot? Fucking after I kicked him in the face. After you kicked him a couple times? Yeah. Okay. And then I fucking hit the ground. Okay. My foot. Okay, all right. Think hard here. How many times did Kevin kick this guy? He must have kicked him a bunch. Guess so. Well, you saw him kicking him. He just kicked him uh, a lot, I guess. Well, how many times would you say a lot? I don't know. More than five? Yeah. More than five. Okay. Was he stomping on him or was he kicking him in the with? I don't know. I wasn't really paying attention to him. My foot was hurting. Okay. Was he hurt your foot at that point? Yeah. Okay. All right. What was Eugene doing at that point? I don't really fucking remember. I was really paying attention because my fucking foot was hurting. Thought it was broke. But before you hurt your foot, Kevin's around him, Eugene's around him, and you're around. Is that correct? I don't know. That's right. I fucking... We, we just got out and Kevin started it. And fucking, we just got out, kicked him a couple times, and fucking took off. Okay. So, Kevin started it? Yeah. Okay. Where was Kevin seated in the car? I don't remember. Okay. Was he in the front or in the back? I don't remember. Okay, where were you sitting in the car? The back. You were in the back. Okay. And who was driving the car? Don't know. Okay, all right. George wasn't the only one who had a rough night. Take Eugene Vent, the youngster. 17 years old. His dark skin, chubby cheeks, his black hair is shaved into a buzz cut. He's reserved and gentle. He was in the thick of things downtown that night, which was spiraling into a huge mess. A motel party gets out of control. Police respond and Eugene is identified as having pointed a gun at the motel's night clerk. A few partiers get pepper sprayed. Eugene takes off on foot. He was found walking home where he was slammed to the ground, arrested, and taken to the Fairbanks Youth Facility where he'd be interviewed, still drunk, just hours later in the early morning by Detective Aaron Ring. Before we continue this story, there's something that should probably be mentioned about Aaron Ring. He had a bad reputation and he'd been the subject of several complaints of abuse. See, three years earlier... In the line of duty, 
he had killed an unarmed native Alaskan man named Henry Kettendorf, firing a single shot through his heart in a well-lit parking lot in downtown Fairbanks. Now, Ring was cleared of any wrongdoing, but the Fairbanks Police Department was pressured to review this matter. The results of this review were never released to the public. A cab driver named Jewel Miller had witnessed the shooting, and this account differed from that of the official police report. Miller saying, They didn't make any effort to revive him. They just laid him out on the ground. He never moved. Around this time, many people in Fairbanks were getting to be a bit fed up with the behavior of the police department. I had one of them pull a gun on me at a friend's house. They busted down the door for a noise complaint, acting like they were uncovering a major international arms deal. What they were actually doing was fucking up the night for a bunch of horny teenagers, writing underage drinking tickets to everyone involved and initiating them into the court system dozens at a time. Following the fatal shooting, a different local cab driver recorded a conversation between two officers that they were having on their CB radios. This conversation was transcribed, although the only major newspaper in town, the Fairbanks Daily News Miner, refused to publish these transcripts. A small little paper called Athabascan Reports run out of North Pole, Alaska, the next town over, did publish the transcripts. I'm going to read a few snippets I've selected. Now, please 